Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme first and foremost by Joanne Tyler. Joanne is the owner and director of Tyler Law, a sole practising solicitor's firm. Joe, very warm welcome to you this morning and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Oh, thanks for asking. It's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure having you with us as well. Um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish your take on leadership. So when you think of your experience leading your own business, Joe, what would you say has been the most difficult test of your life and career and how did you overcome that? Well, um, up until lockdown, I would have said it was Brexit, to be perfectly honest with you, but um, lockdown has to come at the top of that on, on it, you know, to describe it as extremely challenging for both business, you know, trying to dodge getting disease, uh, staff, clients, personally, on every level, it's just affected every level of, I think, everyone's life, you know. Exactly. And when it comes to sort of dealing with a big crisis on the horizon, as soon as it became apparent, for example, that lockdown was going to happen, how did you sort of mentally and emotionally prepare yourself for the challenges that that would bring? Um, Well, I kind of started to see the way the curve was going um, before the lockdown happened. So um, I immediately started to step into the business and um, send out letters to all of my clients to say, you know, this is what I am expecting, I am anticipating, and this is how I will deal with it on your behalf. Everything will be proceeding as normal so that all of my clients um, knew exactly what to expect um, or, and how I would deal with it. So they, they were prepared and there was no immediate shocks. Um, obviously had um, deep conversations with my staff about how I intended to proceed, and that was to start um, obviously sending out letters to clients, managing clients' expectations, and getting staff to work from home to try and limit um, infection within the business, potentially, you know, worst-case scenario, um, and so that the business could continue to work. Mm. Um, I didn't actually foresee initially that the entire country would be locked down and everyone would be stopped from moving, um, so that come as a bit of a shock. Uh, but mentally, that was the only way that I could deal with it at that time. And then when the country was actually locked down and everyone was um, prevented from moving home, uh, I did have a moment there where I just sat there and I thought, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to lose everything. And um, and after that, I kind of sat there and spoke to my husband and everything. And um, I thought, you know, I can either think with everything or I can do what I know what to do and that is just graft and really work and you know see what's happening in the business so um, I literally went straight in and um, I'm kind of at my best in the most challenging times and I tried to look at it as as weirdly as it sounds as sort of an adventure a challenge um, a fun thing that it was a challenge to overcome Um, So I immediately, you know, stepped in, um, took a full audit of my business, spoke to other um, partners in other legal firms locally and who I normally talk to and see what they were doing. Um, And I kind of think that with a lot of them, I was actually ahead of them because 
where I'm a sole practicing solicitor, I can make immediate decisions and be completely flexible, whereas they've all got partners that they have to make discussions with. Um, so then after the initial plan and preparing when the country was locked down, I then made um, further plans and further decisions, and that was pretty much to do a full, full audit, see how much time I had with money going through the firm, with work, how I was going to stretch that out um, for as long as lockdown lasted, and, um, and then what I would do when we came out of lockdown. Um, so those were my two immediate agendas and plans that I put in place. Um, so I kind of tried to avoid the stress of the whole thing mm. by planning and taking those plans forward. And of course, planning and proactivity are two incredibly important things uh, during a time such as this. But if you ever yeah. sort of have in your career, not necessarily during this time, but ever, Joe, sort of made a plan which didn't come off or you sort of failed to achieve exactly what you wanted, how did you sort of get over that setback? Well, um, I tend to look at um, how other people deal with things and, and maybe famous people. And, and um, I think Edison was one of these people that says, I've not actually failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that something hasn't worked. Um, and, and I tend to take that on board. And I think if you look at something in terms of failure, you tend to criticise um, yourself and take things inwardly. And it stops you from being able to be proactive um, and take your business where you need it to be. So I kind of just try and shrug it off and think, well, that didn't work. You know, I thought it was a blinding plan at the time, but it didn't work. So why didn't it work? What things, part, what parts of it did work? And can I reinvent that and take it to the next level and see if that works? And, and you know, um, quite often not. Um, it has, and it's been... A positive experience. I turn. I try and turn a failure into a a positive learning curve. Mm. And what would you say, as a leader, your biggest strength and your biggest weakness are? Um, I think my biggest strength is remaining to set a goal and to remain focused on that goal. Um, I am flexible within that, but you know, the end result is this is where I want to be. In, in a year's time, two years' time, five, year, five years' time, and I set myself targets. Um, and I've got a core of people who I trust implicitly, and they've all got different strengths, and I draw upon those. You know, I go to those people and say, what do you think of this and what do you think of that? And it helps me to make the decisions that I have to make. Um, my biggest weakness, I think, is... Um, maybe that inner critique um, sometimes that we all get where you sit there and you think, I'm not doing this fast enough or I'm not doing this good enough. And, it, and it's that inner self, that you, that voice that you have to kind of knock to one side and think, you know what, actually, I have done this. I will do this. I can do this. This is what I'm going to be. And to turn it into a can-do person rather than a can't-do person. And when you're running a business, of course, it's very easy to be caught up in sort of the busy side of it, the stressful side of it. So when you have yeah. to cope with stress and just find that little bit of time to switch off when you need to, how do you go about doing that? Um, 
I've come to realise over the years when I'm reaching that peak of level where in actual fact things are, are getting too much and um, I have to carve time out to either sit in the garden and just relax and be with my family um, and I turn my phones off, I turn my computers off and, and it's like the outside world doesn't exist um, and I make it solely about quality and family time. Um, or I tend to, you know, um, go away for a weekend and do exactly the same thing. But effectively, it does irritate my husband because I make him turn his phone off as well. <laughs> so there is no communication with the outside world. If we go away for a weekend, if we're in the garden, it's about us and nothing to do with work. And just having that for a day or two days is enough to take the edge off. Mm, that's certainly yeah, good to hear and um, this might sound a little bit of a mean question this next one Joe. but would you say sort of in your position that you do have any guilty pleasures I do yes um, I am <laughs> I, I, I know there's loads of people but I do watch Star Trek I'm a Trekkie and mm. um, and I kind of like the whole um, you know the, the exploring part of it and I can just wind down and not think about anything you know so understand completely and um what I would like to understand as well Joe is um how have you sort of gone about creating a new career or path since your sort of old one has uh, finished um well what I'm doing at the moment hasn't finished but in the future and this is where I go you know mm. with planning for the future um, I've achieved a lot. I'm 48 years of age, you know, and I've achieved a lot in a very short period of time. But I don't necessarily want to keep doing what I'm doing forever. Um, I think you kind of have a lifespan in the legal field where you start to become a bit jaded. Um, and that isn't the best for your clients, for your staff, for your business. And, um, and, you know, from a creativity point of view, I want to go forward and do other things myself. So I've, I've started to do a business plan for something completely different. Um, and I'll work on that for the next couple of years so that I've got a plan B so that I can exit from what I'm doing and try something else. And if you could actually give some advice to that sort of next generation of emerging leaders, youngsters who are looking to get into leading roles in business for the first time, what advice would you give them based upon the years of experience that you now have? Um, to be flexible, um, to think outside the box, look at what you're doing. And if it's not working, to think, well, okay, that isn't working. What can work? What what are all of my competition doing and what are they not doing? And then try what they're not doing because sometimes, you know, like especially in, in the legal field, um, these companies are handed down from person to person to person and they get stuck in this rigid role or model that they use. And where I've been successful is, I've actually worked around those boundaries, um, which is something that my clients love. So I would I would say that thinking outside the box is key and to um, plan for success and don't consider failure um, as an option because if you don't consider failure to be an option, 
when something comes along and it doesn't quite work right, you, you will take that opportunity to think, you know what, that didn't work, but I'm going to find a different way to make it work. And you will reach your goals um, because you don't give up. Exactly. It's all about persistence and perseverance, isn't it? I think that's absolutely right. And so thinking now about the fact that we are, of course, dealing with the aftermath of COVID-19, it's still very much ongoing, in fact, I should probably say. And we are dealing with, of course, this new normal that everybody's talking about. So if we think about sort of the next 12 to 18 months and adjusting to those challenges, Joe, what is next for you, would you say, and for your practice? And what do you really hope to achieve? Um, Well, I'm quite hopeful actually um since lockdown finished um i've taken on a lot of work um and some of the measures that the government has put in have been massively helpful um you know like the furlough scheme mm. uh the bounce back things like that and it's just it's just been enough to give you enough breathing space to go okay i can now do this myself or i can see that in in the next sort of two months this is what I'm working to and I've revised all my business plans and I've now put a con- business continuity plan in for the place, which is something that I never thought that, you know, I'd have to have to deal with. But I'm actually quite hopeful. I've taken off on a lot of work. Um, it's all going in the right direction. And I'm just pushing now my personal boundaries um, and putting in place new challenges, um, you know, plan for the worst, expect the best, and I'm just standing resolute. And I, I just think to myself, well, you know what, um, if I now plan for another lockdown or maybe that your town may go into a little semi-lockdown and how you're going to deal with that. Um, so now that I've kind of got through this bit, um, it's going to be a month-on-month rolling process. But... I, I, I'm, I'm positive and I'm, I, I think I'll get there. It's going to be an uncertain time, but it's good to, of course, view it with a lot of positivity. And let's certainly hope, Joe, there'll be some positive news on the uh, horizon. And in fact, I think given just how informative it's been having you join us on the, uh, the programme today, it would be wonderful to have you back on the show in future just to see how things are getting on in a few months. Yeah, that'd be great. I think it'd be fantastic. It's been a real, real pleasure having you join us uh, today, not just for myself, but also really informative for the listeners as well. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak in future, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're not quite out of the woods with this one yet. No, not yet absolutely not um i was speaking today for those tuning in to joanne tyler owner and director of tyler law and for those listeners please do continue to be sensible and look after yourselves and others because it does make a real difference in saving lives um coming up next on the program today of course i'll be handing over to jonathan white for his exclusive interview with england's 1966 fifa world cup hero sir jeff hurst during his professional career sir jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of west ham united and stoke city But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff. And all of that is, of course, coming up next. Uh, We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Sir Jeff Hurst, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, And perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got 
out for a duck playing for Essex. Uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with, he'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in Sir Ralph Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me. He graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident 
I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years, he it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time... At, Maybe overly strict by the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organization, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh... A, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising they were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and so I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to 
play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think Mm. I was just happy to be, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back out, mm. so I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about. People talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out. The squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm I'm not making this up. I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. There's too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, and I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch.' So that uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke and make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one, which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, 
uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. On this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I had a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. But then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did... Uh, um, but then again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... It would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. But I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches. People must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with? Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really. Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to. Their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just 
luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leading show. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we we're successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude (laughs) alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely, and I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, Jeff, uh, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant 
that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mindedness, single mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not uh, there's, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and. Uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.